So do you know what the word transformation means? To be transformed? The strict definition is this. To be transformed means to make a thorough and dramatic change in form or in character or even in appearance. When we talk about any person being transformed or anything being transformed, we always say that person or that thing is not the same as it used to be. After the transformation, things are different. Now, if you take that definition of transformed and you apply it to our Christian lives, here's what we know. That when a person becomes a Christian, their life is not the same life that they were or that they lived prior to coming to know Christ. In fact, the Bible says this, and it's not just Jim that says it. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. In fact, why don't you read this out loud with me? They'll put it on the screen. Let's say this out loud together. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, stop right there, please. Say those two words, in Christ, out loud again. Say it, in Christ. One more time, in Good. Now go back to the beginning. Let's say it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Now the good news is that anyone can become a Christian. Not everyone is a Christian and not everyone will become Christians, but any person, anyone can become a Christian. And when a person does become a Christian, the, the, the idea, the definition of being a Christian, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, is to be in Christ. Being a Christian means that I am in Christ. So let's be clear. He didn't say if anyone is in church. Because being in church does not make one a Christian. He didn't say if anyone is in a Christian family, then that person is a Christian. It's not true. He didn't say if anyone is in a Christian school. All Christian school kids go to heaven, right? No, sadly not. He didn't say if you're in a Christian school or if you're in a Christian family or if you're married to a Christian or if you're in a Christian church. What did he say? I had you emphasize it. If anyone is, say it, in Christ, then that person is a new creation. Now we are immersed into Christ. That is that we are swallowed up in the person and the work of Christ when we put our trust our confidence, our faith in who Jesus is and in what he did for us on the cross. And when we trust in Christ, we turn from our sin and trust in him, quit trusting our own goodness, our own works, our own religion, our own baptism, our own catechism, whatever. We quit trusting all that. We trust in Christ alone. In that moment, we are baptized into Christ. We are put in to Christ. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, in that moment, Old things pass away. Hear me very carefully. When we come to faith and we are in Christ, there will be some things about our life which will begin to 
dissipate and ultimately disappear. There are some things about our life which will diminish and will then go away. They will become the markers, the identifiers of our old life. Those things pass away. Old things pass away, but Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, behold, the new has come, or the King James words that all things become new. That is to say that when we are in Christ, when we come to faith in Jesus, new things begin to define and describe our lives. The old passes away and begins to diminish, and the new begins to come on. And we would say that person with the old diminishing and disappearing and the new becoming uh, very, very present, that person has been transformed. They have undergone a thorough and dramatic change in form and in character. Now, one other thing I would say about this is that in the moment that you come to faith in Jesus, the new begins instantaneously, immediately. In the moment of our conversion, we are given a new heart, a new nature. Our our life, our soul comes alive. It's spiritually dead before we come to Christ. In the moment of conversion, it comes alive to God. And the new nature is within us. And then the external things of our lives, the attitudes and the behaviors and the practices and, and the values those things of our lives begin to change and they continue changing over the process of time progressively. And why do the external things of our life change? Because the nature on the inside has changed. Do you understand that religion says, modify your behavior, align your behavior with the, with the rules of our religion and you will become a better person on the inside. That's not Christian orthodoxy. That's not Christian faith. Christian faith says, come to faith in Jesus. He'll change your nature on the inside and then he will progressively modify or align your behavior with what, your, what is true of your new nature. And so, the, the, the practices of our lives, the external things of our lives, the transformation in how we live happens in some ways slowly and some ways a, a bit faster and in other ways over the course or the process of our entire lives. But this is what we're talking about when we say a person is born again or a person is transformed, a person has been converted. By the way, converted is another good defining word for transformed. A person is converted when they come to faith in Christ. They experience, they undergo a thorough and a dramatic change in form and in character. Now, having said all of that, let me say to you very plainly, all of you in the room and all of you watching online, hear me say this, Jesus can change your life life. Amen? Amen. Jesus can absolutely radically transform my life and your life. And this is what we're thinking about in these days. Most of you know that last Sunday we began a series of teachings that we're calling Transformed. And we're learning the power of this resurrected Christ, the power of this living Jesus to radically and thoroughly change and transform our lives. Last week we talked about Peter 
how that the risen Christ radically transformed the life of Peter today. We're going to talk about a, a woman in Scripture whose life was transformed in significant ways. You probably will recognize the name. Her name is Mary of Magdala, or we call her Mary Magdalene. Now, perhaps you are most familiar with Mary Magdalene because of her early morning, pre-dawn walk to the garden tomb where Jesus had been buried on that first resurrection, first Easter morning. John chapter 20 records it. You don't have to turn. Let me read it to you. John chapter 20 verse 1 says, The first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came very early while it was yet dark under the sepulcher. And she saw the stone taken away from the grave. And she ran and came to Simon Peter and to that other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. And said unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the uh, sepulcher. And we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary was the first. She came early on Sunday morning with a few other women. But she was the first to leave the tomb and to run and tell the disciples, something has happened. The stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. And Jesus isn't there. That's the, the, the most familiar image we have of Mary Magdalene running away from the empty tomb. And then if you read the rest of chapter 20, you'll see her again in John chapter 20 where she has an encounter with Jesus uh, personally that morning. But here's what's interesting. John 20 is the last time you see Mary in the Bible. She, she disappears from the pages of Scripture after that. And we don't really know what became of her life. There are some, some legends, there's some traditions in church history that, that give us maybe an idea, but we don't know for sure what became of her life. And so what I want to do today is to go uh, back in some time and go to the first time that we meet Mary and this is the reason that I've asked you to turn to Luke chapter number 7, where we're going to be introduced to her in Luke 7 and in Luke 8. Now, uh, before we read these verses, let me just make one thing um, clear that I think will be helpful to you. Um, if you were to think about the three and a half years of the ministry of Jesus, kind of where he did what he did. If you were thinking about uh, the miracles and the preaching and the mission of Jesus in those three and a half years before he was crucified, what you would discover is that almost all of that ministry happened in the land of the Galilee, the Galilee portion of Israel, in the land all ar right around the Sea of Galilee. And almost all of it happened in the northern part or the, the northern shore of the lake. So if you were to go look at a, at a Bible map, you would look at the Sea of Galilee and it would be shaped almost like my hand. Really, if I could do my thumb, it's more jutted out here. But it would almost be shaped like my hand. And if you were to look at the villages around the northern shore of the Galilee, this is where Jesus did his ministry. We know, because the Bible tells us, that he preached in the synagogue of Bethsaida, which would have been right in this area. We know that he preached in the synagogue of Capernaum which would have been right here on the northern tip of the lake. We know that he preached in the synagogue of Chorazin, which is right here, up the hill just a bit, off the lake shore, but right there in that region, Chorazin. And then we believe, we don't know for sure, because the Bible doesn't say it explicitly, but we're confident that he preached in a little village, a little seaside village called Magdala. And Magdala, well, I took my thumb off. Magdala would be right here right on the shore 
of the Galilee. And this is the hometown of Mary of Magdala or Mary Magdalene. And in all likelihood, it was in that little village where she met Jesus. All right, Luke chapter 7, with that background, let's read Luke chapter 7, verse number 36. So the Bible says, And one of the Pharisees desired Jesus that he would eat with him, come to his home for a banquet. And Jesus went to the Pharisee's house, and he sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was, say it out loud with me, what was she? She was a sinner. Now, you you didn't say that right, honestly, because if you had been living in that day, if you had been the Pharisee looking at this woman who was well-known in town, she had the reputation of being a sinner, she was in all likelihood very immoral in her lifestyle, and quite possibly a prostitute, maybe even what we would call a madam. She ran a brothel, uh, and it's possible that she did well-known in the town for her immorality, you would not have said she was a sinner. You would have tucked your chin to your chest, pulled your glasses down on your nose, lowered your voice, and said she was a sinner. (laughs) Can we try it again? A woman which was a... You did that really good. A sinner. This is the way Simon, the Pharisee, would have would have spoken those words. She was a sinner. When she knew that Jesus was having a meal in the Pharisee's house, she she came, which by the way, an uninvited guest is not unusual. Guests often would have come when a rabbi would have come to a prominent home of a Pharisee. They would have a banquet on the balcony. People would stand all around and listen to the conversation. It's very normal in their uh, their customs and manners of of living. Uh, She came, she brought an alabaster box of ointment or perfume. And she stood at the feet of Jesus behind him, weeping. Now remember, they sat at low tables, they sat on pillows, they reclined on cushions, and their feet would be behind them. That's how she can stand behind him at his feet. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head. And she kissed his feet and she anointed them with the ointment or the perfume. Skip to verse 44, please. And he turned to the woman, Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon the Pharisee, do you see this woman? I entered into your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman, since the time that I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head you did not anoint with oil, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven, and they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, who is this that forgives sins also? And he said to the woman, thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. Chapter 8, verse 1. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women 
which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, one named Mary called Magdalene, there she is, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. And Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him, or unto Jesus, out of their substance. We're introduced to Mary in, John, or in Luke chapter 8 and verse number 2. But the fact that I began reading the text back in chapter 7 and verse number 36 tells you that I'm making an inference here. I'm making an assumption. I am of the persuasion that some of you may not share. Let me tell you what it is. It is that I believe that the woman who was called the sinner woman in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 and 37 is in fact the same woman that we know as Mary Magdalene to whom we're introduced in chapter number 8 and verse number 2. It is not known for sure. I cannot say dogmatically that that's the case, but it is my opinion. And I must be honest and tell you that my opinion is not without its detractors. There are plenty of people who would disagree with me about this and they would say, no, we have no real biblical reason to tie these two women together. In fact, some people take issue with calling the woman of Luke 7 Mary Magdalene because she was a, an immoral woman. And nowhere does the Bible actually say that Mary Magdalene was immoral. And so people protest and say, don't call Mary immoral when the Bible doesn't call her immoral. It's not fair. And I must concede it might not be fair, but it's not illogical either. It's not unreasonable to consider that this might have been Mary Magdalene. I really believe that a woman who figures so prominently into the ministry of Jesus as Mary does, that the Bible would give us a bit of information about her. Did you know that Mary is so prominent in the, in the ministry of Jesus that she is named in the Gospels more than most of his own apostles are named? I mean, she, she figures very prominently into his life and into his ministry. And I just believe the Bible would tell us some things about her. There's also some reason to believe that it might be her because Luke's introduction of, of Mary Magdalene immediately after telling us about this sinner woman I think could tie her to that event. So I don't know for certain that it is but I would propose to you that in all likelihood it might be. Now the fact is whether it's her or not we do know that Jesus transformed Mary's life in some pretty profound ways. So why don't you write this down? Let's begin by talking about, just really simply, Mary's old life. Let's talk for a minute about Mary's old life. You know, Mary, before she met Jesus, her life had become so broken. Her life had become so bound up that the Bible tells us in chapter 8, verse number 2, that she was demon Possessed. Look at it again. Chapter 8 and verse number 2. The Bible says, Out of whom had gone seven devils. She was possessed by seven devils. Now, the word that's translated devils is the word daimonion, uh, daimonion and we get our word demon. You could say, in fact, maybe if you have a more modern translation of the Bible than I'm reading from in the King James, it would say seven demons. 
The word means evil spirits. Seven evil spirits, seven demons possessing Mary Magdalene. Now you might say, Pastor, I don't even know if I believe in demons, right? I, I mean, I don't know if, if, if demons truly exist. Well, let me suggest to you that you cannot be a Bible believer and not believe in the reality of demonic spirits. Let me be clear, the same Bible that tells me that there are angels that are God's ministering spirits to his saints, the same Bible tells me that there are demons which are active in this world seeking to hinder the work of God and God's people. The same Bible that tells me there is a good God who is the father of lights and the father of mercies and this God who offered up his son Jesus for my own salvation. The same Bible tells me that there is a devil, Satan, who is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The same Bible that tells me that there is light tells me that there's darkness and the same Bible that tells me that there's good tells me that there is evil. You cannot believe the Bible and not believe in demons. Demons absolutely exist. They are real and they are at least in some parts, at least some of them are active in our world. These are spirit beings created by God who have fallen from their first estate. Now, I have to tell you that in reality, I'm just mentioning this issue about demons in no way that we can dig into it in any depth. It could be an entire, really, series of messages, but certainly an entire message just devoted to understanding spiritual warfare, spiritual entities. But suffice it today to simply say that demons are malevolent, evil, spiritual beings who were created as angels and yet who have fallen from that first estate. They have followed Lucifer in rebellion and they have been cast out of heaven, some of whom are now held in chains awaiting the day of judgment, others of whom are active in the world. These demonic spirits have no physical form, but they are just that. They are spirits. And because they have no evil form, they have the apparent desire and certainly the ability to take spiritual form by possessing people or even animals. We see that uh, in the biblical text as well. There are numerous examples of demon possession in uh, the Bible. There are certainly numerous examples in history as well. Uh, both ancient and contemporary history. But there's plenty of evidence in the Bible that demons have the ability to take possession of people or of animals, sometimes more than one. It says that Mary had seven demons. We read in the same chapter, Luke 8, of one man who apparently was uh, inhabited or possessed by 2,000 demons. The Bible tells us that sometimes demons cause sickness, sometimes insanity. In fact, look at Luke 8, uh, Luke 8, 20. Six, where Jesus arrives in a part of the country called Gadara. Look at verse 26. They arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is next to Galilee. And when he, Jesus, went forth to land, he was met there out of the city by a certain man which had devils who had been possessed of demons for a long time. And this person wore no clothes. And he didn't live in a house, but he dwelt among the tombs. 
And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High? I beseech thee, torment me not. Now, who's saying this, the man or the, de- or the demons? The, the demon's saying it. The man doesn't know who Jesus is. He's never seen him before. But the devils know who Jesus is. By the way, the book of James tells us that the devils know who Jesus is. They believe, God, uh, believe in God and they tremble. So he says, You're the Most High God. Look at verse number 29. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For oftentimes it would catch him and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters. He had this uh, this supernatural strength because of his possession. He could break the chains and he was driven by the devil into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him saying, what is your name? Speaking to the demon. The demon said, our name is Legion because we are many uh, devils that had entered into him. Verse 31, they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. Now, everybody stop right here for one second. This is really important. Notice that when Jesus cast these upwards of 2,000 demons out of one man, they're asking Jesus, please don't send us into the abyss. Some demons are bound up in the abyss. Others are working in the world. They said, please don't condemn us to the abyss. And so they, they uh, said, there, uh, verse 32, there was a herd of many pigs feeding on the mountain. And they said to Jesus, will you send us into the pigs? And he allowed that. Verse 33, so the devils went out of the man and entered into the swine. By the way, do you know that the very first sermon I ever preached in my life when I was 17 years old was out of this text? Now, how crazy was that? What's a 17-year-old preacher kid doing preaching a text about demon possession? I didn't know what I was talking about. But I preached it because I'd heard a joke, and I wanted to tell that joke in the sermon, so that's the reason I went with this text. And the joke was, the demons went out of the man and into the pigs. It's the first time in the Bible you find deviled ham. (laughs) Kind of the same muted response I got all those years ago as well. Well, anyway, this really happened. So the demons leave the man. They go into the swine. They run down into the lake, and and they're drowned. Now, it's interesting that this man has this horrible life of this possession of demons. He lives in the tombs. He cuts himself. He runs naked. He, He has supernatural strength by this demonic influence. He's this insane, wild eyed, crazy man until... He meets Jesus. And guess what happens? He's transformed. Because look at verse number 35. They went to see what was done and they came to Jesus and they found this same man out of whom the devils were departed sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind. You know what that is? It is a thorough and dramatic change in form and in nature because he had an encounter with Jesus. See, this is what demons can do. They cause sickness, they cause insanity, supernatural knowledge, miraculous powers, seizures, violence. It's possible that demons can do that to a person. Now, it doesn't always happen that way. We tend to think it does. You hear the word demon possession, what movie do you think of? The Exorcist, most of us do, right? We we think anytime a person is possessed by demons, they're floating and their head's spinning and, and that's what demon possession looks like, not always. They could simply be evil, sinister, immoral, lustful. Demon possession, while it sometimes can rack a body violently, it doesn't always do that. 
And you may be asking a question, and so I'll answer it just in case you are asking it. And it is the question, well, what about a Christian? If demon possession is a real thing, if demons can take possession of a person, then what about a Christian? I'm a follower of Jesus. Can I be demon-possessed? Well, the Bible doesn't answer that question directly, not explicitly at least, but it does answer it implicitly over and over again. There are plenty of scriptures which indicate that it is impossible that a demon cannot take possession of a Christian life and all Christians ought to say amen. Praise God. Why can't he? Because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God indwells within us and greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The works of Satan have been broken in the life of the believer and Christ has taken up his abode in us. But while we can't be possessed by demons, we are warned about the influence of demons, aren't we? We are instructed that we are to pray against their influence. We are to um, arm ourselves up in the armor of God that we might be able to stand against the schemes and the influences of Satan and his demon hordes. What do we know about Mary And her demon possession. Well, look at chapter 8 and verse number 2. It says that she was under the complete control of these demons. Some have speculated that there were seven demons in her numerically. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Exactly as the text says. Others have said that's more figurative language because seven is the number of completion. She was completely under the control of these demons. Demons. I tend to believe the number is what the number is because the Bible means what it says and says what it means. But in either case, she was under the complete control of these demons. She might have also had some infirmities. Look at verse number two. Certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And we don't know for certain, but it's very likely, very possible that, that uh, Mary Magdalene suffered some sort of physical uh, suffering, hardship, ailment. Or infirmity because of these demons. Now, if I'm right that the sinner woman in Luke chapter 7 is Mary Magdalene, then we could also say that this demonic influence led her into a life of great immorality. Where chapter 7, verse 37 and uh, 38, down through verse number 47, tell us that she is known to be a sinner. Even Jesus, look at chapter 7, verse 47. Jesus said of her, her sins which are many. So these demons led her into an immoral lifestyle. As I mentioned, in all likelihood, a prostitute. And quite likely, even the operator of a brothel. That's very possible. Listen, prostitution was big business in the economy of Rome. And people who operated brothels were wealthy people in most any city or town. And and the Bible says in uh, Luke chapter 8 and verse 3, that Mary Magdalene was a woman of some financial means, that she had earned some some money, and perhaps she earned that money through an occupation that was immoral. We don't know what of all of those things are true, but we can say that she was held in a deep and a tragic personal torment by these demonic forces, and she was helpless to defeat them on her own. Now, loved ones, let me just say to you that the same thing remains true today. I'm convinced that much of what we see in the lives of people that we call bad behavior or immorality or poor decisions 
is in fact, if not demon possession, I'm not suggesting that just because someone doesn't live right, they're demon possessed, but it is the influence of Satan and his demons in their work in this world. And I want you to know that in the same way that Mary was influenced by these, this demonic spirit in the same way we can be as well. Well, she had an old life as all of us have. Secondly, I want you to notice, uh, again, very simply, Mary's conversion. This moment when Mary was transformed, when she was converted uh, by the power of Christ. Look at uh, chapter 8, Luke chapter 8 and verse number 2 tells us that this was Mary Magdalene out of whom went seven devils. Now that means that she was demon possessed and then those demons left. But where Luke leaves off exactly what that might have looked like, we do get a little more information from Mark. Turn back, if you will, to Mark chapter 16. It's only a few pages. Mark's right in front of Luke. Uh, Mark chapter 16. And listen to how Mark tells us about these demons being removed from Mary's life. I'm in Mark chapter 16 and verse number 9. Listen to it. The Bible says, Now, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, here, here's this tidbit of information. Out of whom he, Jesus, had cast seven demons or seven devils. So Mark is a little more explicit in what this moment looked like. Luke says they just went out. Mark says Jesus cast them out. Now the word that's translated cast is a word which means to drive out with force or to expel Violently, I'm liking this a little better now. I, I, I like the way that this happened for Mary. I don't know exactly what it looked like. I do know there were other examples where Jesus drove out demons and he got, he got serious with them. I mean, all up in their grill, if you know what I'm talking about. Turn back a couple of pages to Luke chapter 4. Now, this is not Mary's experience, but the Bible says in Luke 4, and verse 41, that the devils, demons, were coming out of many people. They were crying out. Remember, the demons know who Jesus is. Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. I just love this. Jesus casting out demons. And the demons going, oh, you are. And he's going, shut up. Christ taking authority over the demonic forces. Get out of her. Be quiet and leave. I just believe this is what happened in Mary. I don't know when it happened. I don't know where it happened exactly. I don't know exactly what it was like. But you have this woman who is tormented under the complete control of these demons in an immoral lifestyle, bound up in bondage to them. And she comes in contact with the living, loving, compassionate, powerful Son of God. And he says to those demons, leave her now. And she is immediately changed forever. Praise God for grace and conversion. She was born again on that day. She was changed. And in the same way, if you've ever come to faith in Jesus Christ, there has been a moment of conversion. That may not have been this dramatic. It, it may not have been Christ commanding demons to leave you. I remember when I came to faith, it was a dramatic conversion. I wasn't demon-possessed. I was certainly under the influence of demonic spirits and, and forces and influences. But there was this dramatic moment when Christ called me to himself and my life changed. And if you've come to faith, it's happened for you as well. Mary's past life, her old life, her conversion, and then 
her new life. Would you write it down again very simply? Mary's new life. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 17? If any man or woman be in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things pass away and the new comes. If you've truly been born again, there's been a transition, a transformation in your life. The old is passing away. The new is coming. It's continuing. That work is progressive. One day it'll be complete. But if you've come to faith in Christ, there has been a transition. And there was in Mary's life as well. Very quickly, you'll see this in chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. Mary's life of bondage and immorality became a life of worship. Look at chapter 7 of Luke in verse number 37. Behold, a woman in the city which was a, what was she? Sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster box of perfume. She stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. She's obviously already had an encounter with Jesus. Something has already changed in her life. Her, her past is that she's had a life of much sin, but now she stands a worshiper at the feet of Jesus. I mentioned that in the days of Christ, they would eat at a low table called a triclinium, and they would recline on couches. It wasn't a chair or cushions. It wasn't a chair like you and I eat at a table where we sit in a chair and pull our feet up under the table. No, they would come to the table and sit on the floor on cushions, reclining on their left arm, eating with their right hand and their feet out behind them, like you would eat a TV dinner almost if you're on the couch, laying to the side. She walks up. She, she hears the voice of Jesus. She sees this Lord in whom she's putting her trust. And she sees those feet behind him, and she begins to weep. And suddenly she notices that her tears are dropping off of her cheeks, and they're literally washing his feet. His feet are, are becoming wet with her tears, and so she drops. And she needs to dry her tears from his feet. She doesn't have a towel. What's she going to dry his feet with? The only thing she has is her hair. She takes her hair down, which, by the way, would have been kept up. And she takes her hair down, perhaps this long, flowing hair, and she, she reaches and begins to dry his feet with her hair. By the way, did you know that the Bible says that the glory of a woman is her hair? This is a beautiful picture, that she takes her own glory and puts it at the feet of Jesus. This is what happens when we come to Christ. Our glory, whatever it might be, is surrendered to him at the feet of Jesus. She takes her hair. She begins to wipe his feet. Now she's holding his feet in her hands. And they're beautiful feet. Because the Bible says that beautiful are the feet of those that carry the good news. Right? Jesus has been going through every city, every village, preaching the good news of the kingdom. They're beautiful feet. She's holding his feet. And she can't help herself. She just begins to close his feet. And finally... She takes the alabaster box of perfume. Very expensive. Remember, chapter 8, verse 3, she was a woman of some financial means. She takes this expensive box of perfume and she breaks it. And she anoints his feet. This woman, bound up by demons previously, a life of immorality and bondage and hopelessness, now on her knees, worshiping Jesus. And this is what happens to the life that is transformed by Christ. 
that suddenly something within us which would have never cared about the exaltation of Jesus before, suddenly we care deeply and we want his name to be exalted. Him whom we would never have loved before, we now love. When Kim was leading us in that song, Jesus, Jesus, no sweeter name, I have to tell you, I'm not a singer, but something in my heart just said, I love that name. I want to honor Jesus. She was a worshiper. Secondly, her life of bondage became a life of faithfulness. Chapter 8, verse number 3, she and these other women supported Jesus' ministry. They participated. They followed Jesus. And Matthew 27 tells us that Mary followed Jesus all the way, all the way to Jerusalem, all the way to the cross. She was there when he suffered and died, all the way to the tomb. She was there when he was buried. And she was there the first morning that he rose from the dead. It was a life of faithfulness. Number three, it was a life of sharing the good news. This woman became one who would tell the good news. God didn't send angels to do it. He sent redeemed people to do it. And so she was the first to go and say, the tomb is empty and he has risen. Here's my point, that Mary had an old life in the bondage to, to demons. She had a conversion moment when she met Jesus. And after her conversion moment, her life changed forever. And so I just need to ask you, is that your experience? Does 2 Corinthians 5.17 describe you? Are you in Christ? And if you say, well, I'm not sure, then 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells you how you can know. Has the old begun to pass away and the new begun to come? And if the life that you always lived before you said you met Jesus is the same life you live today and there's nothing new or different about your life or transformed about your life, then I would suggest to you, you have zero biblical basis to claim faith in Christ. Has your life changed? We've been learning about Mary's transformation. I want to close our time by sharing with you an encouraging video about a lady in our church whose life was changed. Similarly, her name's not Mary, but it's Marie. Take a look at the screens. I'm Marie, and this is my transformation story. As soon as I got out of high school, I was attending UNCA and living with a bunch of friends, and we started to drink as a activity. That drinking turned into a 15-year-long addiction. When I tell people that the sin that I was in was so deep, it's really hard to fathom unless you've been imprisoned alcoholism the way that I was. I, I couldn't see beyond when I was gonna have the next drink. Really, that was what I got up for every day was, oh, where's the next party? When you're living life drinking every day, the sin that start, starts to snowball and really entrap you is hard to break. And you, you, there's times where you think, how am I going to get out of this? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm so deep living in darkness. Is there a way out? There was a friend of mine by the name of Al Briggs. Al and I were drinking buddies. We, we seen each other at the bars. Um, we seen each other at nightclubs. At that time, that's what a friend was, was somebody to drink with. He started attending church. His life did such a 360 so fast I knew that I wanted what he had. So 
once Al was saved and started the transformation in his life, um, he started inviting me to church. He never gave up. It was probably a year process of him asking me to come to church, and so I started attending. I just felt a connection. I just felt this. there's love in this place. There is something in this place that is calling me back. So Easter Sunday, 2001, was the day I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. At the end of the service, they did an altar call. And so I went up front, and Al was in the distance behind me, and um, I, I got on my knees and prayed, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Change my life. I'm ready for, I'm ready for you to lead my life. I had given my life to Jesus, and starting that day, there was going to be change, uh, and I was ready for that change. When the drinking started being removed out of my life, I knew from the bottom of my heart, I wanted it completely out of my life. God gave me this peace that He was going to take it, and I trusted it. I trusted it. And as He's slowly removing it out of my life, I start to see um, that that hope. I knew then that God w w was taking it away. Then God started pouring in joy. Joy now is waking up in the morning with peace. The joy that that is in my life now, my husband, our daughter, um, relationships that I have with others is so abundant that I know that God put me in the shoes that I am today so that He can take the people that were so imprisoned to sin the way I was and, and say, wow, He did it in her life, He can do it in mine.